0: All right, everybody. Here we go. Going to be a little bit different today. It's going to be just me solo on the mic. We'll have Sean tomorrow. So it'll be me today. uh, Our interview with Michael Lombardi a little bit later on. I took some questions. I've got things to say about Le'Veon Bell. I've got things to say about voice to text and many, many more. Here we go. All right, so the time for Le'Veon Bell to report to the Pittsburgh Steelers has come and gone. He's going to be turning down 14 plus million dollars to play football this year. Uh, it, the thinking is that the Steelers, in franchising him next year, would have to give him 25 million dollars, or at least take up 25 million dollars of cap space to hold that franchise pot for him. So most people assume that they'll probably just let him go into free agency. I, I, Everything's so unsettled on this that I'm not completely certain they won't at least try to pull some kind of shenanigans with him, but whatever, he's probably gonna be a free agent next year. It seems like most people in the know in the NFL think this is an atrociously bad idea in terms of how he's negotiated all of this. And there are people that will defend it and say that he's actually going to come out ahead financially, but you generally have to do a few backflips to get yourself to that scenario. I think in a conventional sense, this probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't know if he's going to gain back that $14 million and that year he lost in whatever contract he gets right now. I think if you think about it a little bit more loosely And think about it in terms of, okay, if he went to the Steelers this year and they did what they did last year, which is, hey, we've got a running back on a one-year contract. Let's just run him into the ground. Let's get him 400-plus touches. And that ultimately might have hurt his value in free agency. The history of running backs who have gone on to do really well after touching the ball 400-plus times two years in a row is not a great one. And I do wonder if his value ultimately would have been hurt. So you'll never figure that out. We'll never know exactly what kind of a contract he would have gotten if he played this year and then went to free agency. I do wonder if you could make a case for the fact that at some point down the road toward the end of his career when he's still a viable running back and maybe there's still big money out there, that year will be in a much higher cap space environment because the cap keeps going up every year. So maybe he earns it on the back end. Then you got to get into the time value of money and how much interest he would have earned on the money that he took this year or last year when he took that contract. It doesn't seem to make a whole lot of financial sense. I always try to keep the door open though that guys, especially when they're wired differently like Le'Veon Bell is, that sometimes there's a little bit more to it than just the money. Sometimes it's How you feel in that organization? Whether you want to be used by them—I mean, we're all being—we're all being used. No matter what job you have, you're being used. There's no—there's no shame in that. Everybody acts like, "Oh, my employer is using me." Of course, he's using you or she, uh, whoever it is. They're using you, and you're using them for the paycheck. So, no big deal. Uh, I've got—I had taken some notes on this. I was actually listening to Andrew Brandt talk about it with Ross Tucker. Ross Tucker's got a great podcast. Andrew Brandt's a former. GM former agent really bright guy but I was taking some voice to text notes and I I don't I don't hate Apple voice to text I'm frustrated with it because I feel like it's gotten worse over the past 3 years I don't know why that would be but I rely on it a lot for my job but I just want some consistency like if it's going to misinterpret my words in one way do it consistently I've got 3 different notes in a row here and I'll just read them to you verbatim James Conner rescues the labia on from a whole lot more public derision. Okay, what I meant there was that James Conner, I think, rescued Le'Veon. Not labia. There's nothing James Conner can do for or against the labia that people don't already feel already. Uh, hopefully I, uh, hopefully you have good feelings about the labia. I myself do. Not exactly the difference. Uh, I'm not exactly sure the difference between the Majora and the Minora or exactly how all that works, but generally a fan of the female body parts. Uh, but I do think James Conner, because of his production, even though people are, are very easily uh, – they can use James Conner now as ammunition against Le'Veon Bell and say, you oh, you you know you suck anyway. Le'Veon, uh, uh, James Conner is better than you anyway. Steelers fans at least have a replacement. If James Conner had sucked – and didn't look anything like he did last year and didn't replicate a lot of Le'Veon Bell's performance. And then that would mean the Steelers probably weren't doing as well as they are right now. And Le'Veon Bell would be getting a whole lot more hatred. The second note I would cheer for Levy. For sticking it to the man, but in this situation, the Steelers ended up with him uh, with an adequate replacement and a fourteen point five million dollar cap break. So this time, it chose to interpret Le'Veon as Levy instead of Labia, spelled Levy like uh, like Marv Levy's last name. I don't know. Like I've I've never voiced a texted Marv Levy or probably even written it on this computer. I don't know how that happened, but. That fact remains that the Steelers get a $14.5 million cap break uh, from all of this and had James Conner perform well in Le'Veon Bell's stead. It's just an astounding turn of events. By the way, James Conner, I love watching this kid run for one reason and one reason alone. It's that his head is constantly on a swivel. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Watch him run he, it looks like a bobblehead. Like, he constantly has his head scanning from left to right. And it's really interesting because I do wonder if maybe some running backs who otherwise don't have great field vision, maybe it's a matter of just actually being more active and, and swiveling that skull around uh, so your eye sockets go along with them. It's really cool. That's That's my favorite thing about watching him, aside from the actual production and everything. I like that he has a unique style. Third note. Maybe leave Jana is planning on taking an extra year of uh, product, tacking an extra year of productivity to his career at the end. That's what we had just talked about. So this time it said leave Jana for Le'Veon. I don't, I don't understand. I've typed Le'Veon in here. Auto works with Le'Veon. I, whatever, whatever. Apple. I'm done with you. I'm done with this topic too. I've got other thoughts on it, but you can get, you can get into a rabbit hole with Le'Veon Bell and all the different scenarios that it entails here. John Gruden. I'm very interested, again, because I was listening to Andrew Brandt talk about John Gruden. John Gruden professes to hate all the analytics, and then he claims that he actually likes the analytics, but that he also wants to take it back to 1990. Uh, but it's, as he's doing all of this, as Andrew Brandt pointed out, he's doing a very moneyball thing, which is they're maybe they're not intentionally tanking on the field, but some of the moves they've made in trading away Amari Cooper and, and trading away Khalil Mack in exchange for draft picks and first-round picks at that, is that they're sacrificing the present for the future. And even though the Amari Cooper deal was a much better one than the Khalil Mack, likely, if you're going to suck, you're going to suck anyway. And maybe if it's a guy on a 10-year deal looking two, three, four years down the road, maybe they end up looking all right at the end of this. I I still highly doubt it, but I do wonder, wonder if John Gruden is a guy who had presented himself on TV as being a smarter guy than some people thought he was, but now comes back and those same people are thinking, wow, he's really dumb, when in fact, he might be even smarter than he looked on TV, where he kind of looked like a dumb guy trying to sound smart, in which case he outsmarts everybody and outfoxes everybody. I have no idea what to make of John Gruden anymore, Other than that, I thought that he would have learned some lessons while he was gone about the way you deal with people and all of these other aspects of NFL coaching. I'm not sure that he did. I'm not sure that he can help himself from taking veiled shots at players in the media, from always maybe looking outside and wondering who else out there is better than these schmucks on my own team. Michael Lombardi has talked about how... He is notorious back in the day for when he was in Philadelphia as an offensive coordinator. He just he just couldn't stand how these guys were no good on his team. Then he got to the Raiders, and he couldn't shut up about how great the guys were in Philly, and he wishes he had them here in Oakland. And then he got to Tampa, and he wouldn't stop talking about like how much he loved his guys in Oakland. And if they had a few of those guys over here, they'd be all right in Tampa. I that That's not anything he said publicly or anything, but I wonder if you can actually – learn that out of your system or if that's just inherently in him I'm gonna I'm gonna hold my judgment oh my kidding I'm not gonna hold my judgment on John Gruden until he starts winning football games for the first time in a long time because he hasn't won football games in a long time since that Tampa Super Bowl. It hasn't been a great coaching career for John Gruden. I'm gonna continue to think that he's not quite as smart as some people think but that among intelligent people who think that John Gruden is a moron, he's actually much, much smarter than that. I don't know where that puts him on the spectrum. Now, concerning the aforementioned Eagles, who at this point are 4-4, four and four, not looking good at all. They're all banged up. They've got all kinds of issues. Um, they have a bunch of guys who just aren't doing quite as well as they were last year. Um, in addition to just the all the injuries that they've had, and here in Houston, we saw the same thing with the Astros where, in a lot of respects, look, they great, they played great in the regular season, but it got to the postseason and th- these guys were just, they were banged up. You know, we talked to Lance McCullers this morning on my radio show and he was talking about how there were a lot of injuries that... People don't know about and probably never will know about. Lance himself was playing with a torn UCL. He had to get Tommy John surgery after the surg- uh, after the season. Altuve's playing through a broken kneecap. All these guys. And I, I think more and more that every time people talk about how hard it is to repeat as a champion, usually they'll talk about how it's, uh, it's hard to avoid all the distraction. It's hard to get motivated. All these psychological factors. I think so much of it just boils down to fatigue. It's just guys are flat out beat up and worn out. And that first championship takes so much out of you, not just emotionally or psychologically with the stress, just physically. You're playing a lot of football. You're playing a lot of baseball. You have less time to recover during the season. Um, And I I do think – I think playoff games take more out of you than regular season games. I I can remember my rookie year in the first playoff game I played in I remember thinking, oh, oh, wow, this is this is business now. I thought I knew what I was doing, but man, every last little ounce of effort that somebody can give on any given play is is going on. And in football, that it whacks the snot out of you. It just literally beats you up. And that's at least part of the issue. Um, and then obviously they have all the other issues. I'd like to say I'm pulling for the Eagles, but now now that their fans have a Super Bowl. And uh, I I, I actually kind of miss Philadelphia being the lovable losers. I thought they were lovable. It's hard to love a Philly person, okay? I, I get that. I understand that. I myself love various people from Philadelphia. I understand that to others they might be hard to love but I do. I would hate for Philadelphia to become insufferable and I feel like they were one Super Bowl championship away from being completely insufferable. I feel like t- two Super Bowl championships in Philadelphia might be like any other sports city getting eight Super Bowl championships. You'd have guys emboldened, emboldened to have all manner of aggressive behavior uh, above and beyond the boundaries of good human decency. So maybe this is where it needs to be where this is where it needs to be to be the city of brotherly love and the rocky statue and all the rest of it and not to mention the place where I saw a father encourage his two nine ten year old kids to flip me off and moon me after a game there in 2002 it's a heartwarming scene of father son bonding passing one tradition down to the next uh those two kids gosh by now what are they? In 2002, 2002? 2002, probably they're, they're in their early 20s. Um, I hope they're law-abiding citizens. I, I hope they're not beating up kids at frat parties, but uh, there's a good chance that they are. So let's get to the Michael Lombardi interview. We talked to him about a bunch of stuff here. And then after that, I've got some questions from Twitter that I will answer. Here we go, Michael Lombardi. Oh, and... When we had him on today, we were still playing some music as we brought him in. I'm not licensed to play that music, so uh, we once again start kind of abruptly with the Michael Lombardi interview uh, because I had to cut off about the first 15 seconds. Michael Lombardi. Michael, where are you this morning? I'm back in New Jersey. I, I'm, I'm no
1: longer traveling. I finally got my office set up so I am actually can get work done. I'm in the great state of New Jersey.
0: Are you? Uh, have you been introduced to kind of – the life of an author and these book tours and how chaotic it can be.
1: You know, it's been, it's been fun. I mean, it's interesting to see the, 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 uh, the people that read it, you know, it's kind of interesting, you know, Robert Caro told me one time the greatest pleasure he ever got was in the subway and uh, was somebody was reading the power broker and he was standing next to him. So That's awesome. it's kind of fun. Yeah. I mean, it's really kind of interesting and, and the, the tweets that you get from people from all over, I mean, you know, from Australia to uh to china it's been it's been kind of interesting
0: have you had that exchange yet where you saw somebody who's reading the book and then you would like ask them their opinion on it and then (laughs) then...
1: (laughs) no i would be i don't even ask how many books we've sold i'm too scared to even do that i just kind of like let it go i figure if it you know it'll keep coming back around so and you know i think this book i mean you read it seth i think this book is it's really for high school coaches of any sport, and it's going to be a little evergreenish because I think it'll be as popular in March as it is as football season because I think people that are in football will have more time to read in the
0: spring. And I also have ideas about how you need to transfer it over to like a business model too because that's where you're going to get the big money on the speaking tour. Is uh, I'll send you my notes, Michael. I've got notes. Please, please um, feel
1: free. I love it. Yeah, well, I
0: love it. And, and then this, uh, the one part of the book that really was fascinating to me was you kind of outlined – what you would want to see from a head coach if you were interviewing him for what his plan is for all these different things. And it's incredible when you list them all out, like all the different decisions a head coach has to make during the year. And it, it got me thinking about Mike Vrabel and his transition to head coach. At the very least, no matter what, Vrabel ends up as a head coach. I feel like he, maybe more so than some guys, understood exactly like what a challenge it is going from being a coordinator to a head coach. And that's part of the reason why he hired a defensive coordinator.
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think this, uh, you know, I think that when you look at what the Titans have been able to do, and I don't think they're a great team, but but just situationally, when you... You know, defenses in the NFL today have have got to play good in about seven areas. Nobody's going to play just flat out great defense. You can't you can't allow scores at the end of the half. You got to play great red zone third down defense. You got to you can't you got to keep people out of the end zone on points in the red zone. You can't give up big plays. You got to you got to stop third and short. Uh, you got to be good on third down overall, and obviously points allowed is critical. And then you can't give up points in two minutes. And when you just take those categories and you average out. Where teams rank in those Tennessee's the best defense in football in those specific situational uh, areas which mm-hmm. affects their which is why they're four and five I mean I don't think they're a great team but they're really good in those areas I mean Minnesota's the fourth best team in those areas because that's what they do and I think when you look at defense today I think when you can emphasize these these areas and you get better and better at those you have a chance I mean the Bengals no secret they're the worst team in almost every single one of these areas <laughs> The Patriots have looked bad in their three losses this season. If you are the Houston Texans and you're looking at the New England Patriots, should you overreact or relax when it comes to how they've looked in those losses and specifically the play of Tom Brady in those losses? Look, Brady hasn't played well on the road. I mean, they have given up double-digit losses on the road three times. The only team they beat were the Chicago Bears, who we all know Mitchell Trubisky is going to Canton next week very soon, you know, based on his performance in <laughs> <at> the Chicago <laughs> papers. I mean, there's got to be an enshrinement at any time soon here. Uh, but I, I think that, you know, it's been bad for, for the Patriots offensively. I mean, Tom average is under seven yards per attempt. Uh, throwing the ball down the field. He's been sacked 10 times on the road. They can't get any offense going. You know, the one game that they won in Chicago, Gronk didn't play, yet they were very effective in that game, throwing the ball. The other game that they won was Buffalo, and we all saw that on on television. They struggled to move the ball effectively against the Bills. So this is the problem. I think that, you know, what Deion Lewis said last week about the Patriots, you know, Deion wanted to stay there. I think he wanted to play. I think they missed that back. I think Sonny Michel gives them a little element of that but it's not quite what they need yet, and it's not consistent. And then their offensive line has not played well on the road.
0: Mike, I don't know if you would remember this from your days in Cleveland, but we spent a lot of time this week discussing Bill O'Brien against uh, D.J. Swearinger and the war of words, mostly from D.J.'s side about what happened in Houston back uh, four years ago. What did you guys think of Swearinger coming out of South Carolina?
1: You know, look, I think D.J. was a good player. I think there's a certain role. I think there's limitations when you take a safety that's not a pure man-to-man safety the way the game's going. Uh, you know, and I think that it, it depends on how you want to set up. I mean, look, the Honey Badgers, you know, was a corner in college, and they put him inside because everybody, you need three corners almost all the time on the field to be able to make the adjustments. So, you know, I I know Bill well enough to know that I doubt that, you know, I can't believe that he said those things, just like I don't believe he said to Case Keenum that he'll never be a player in the NFL. I mean, that's typically not what coaches say.
0: That's the the one objection I've had to that is that, for one, I know how badly people remember specifics about conversations. Like, Mike Mike and I get in about five arguments a week, and when I listen back to the tape, I'm like, oh, yeah, that didn't exactly sound the way I thought it did. I feel the same way, yes. um And the other yeah. is that I'm with you, Michael. The thing is that by the time anybody's been in the NFL long enough, they've been wrong about their personnel evaluations. Like somebody has exceeded your expectations or disappointed you. So I just can't see Bill O'Brien sitting there and like genuinely thinking or saying you'll never be a certain player. Like because everybody's been surprised.
1: Right. We all have. I mean, look, if you ever meet a scout who's never admitted he's made a mistake, he's a bad scout. Like that's the reality. We all, and the only way we get better in our profession is to learn from our mistakes. It's the only chance we have. And so, you, you know, anybody who who thinks they're perfect in picking players, you know, it's that scout that sits on the fence all the time. You know, yeah, I think this guy's a good player. Yeah, I don't think he is. And whenever he turns out, I've got the right answer. You know, that can't happen you got to have some convictions. I mean, look, you're going to be wrong at times. You're going to learn from your mistakes, and if you do learn from them, you're going to be improving. You're going to make fewer and fewer, and you've got to be able to be objective to admit your mistakes. That's the critical component. Mike, are the Redskins a good team? I don't think so. I really don't, and here's why. I think that when you look at their secondary and you see the matchups that you can create out of their corner, Josh Norman's not a man-to-man corner. You know, I know he's got a lot of hype in the media, but I think that, to me, there's they struggle when they have to play man-to-man. I think you could see it with their defensive scheme. I think when they try to have to lock down, Atlanta went in there. Atlanta's a bad road team. Matt Ryan averages two yards less yards per attempt on the road than they did, than he does at home, and he threw the ball effectively against them. If you can block the front, now this front's pretty good. Jonathan Allen, you know, they've got those Alabama kids in there, Ryan Anderson. Uh, uh, they, they you know, and Kerrigan, they got guys that can rush the pass you. You've got to handle this front. But if you can, you can move the football effectively via the air on them, and I think that's certainly what Houston can do. Now, offensively, look, Alex Smith hasn't played anywhere near the level he played in Kansas City. He's back to the San Francisco pre-Jim Harbaugh, Alex Smith, But what they've been able to do is make enough plays. And the number one thing they've done a great job of this year is they've avoided losing. The the Redskins haven't given the ball away and they haven't lost games. They've actually been the beneficiary of the other team losing like what happened last week down in Tampa Bay.
0: Michael, you wrote in the athletic about how Michael McCarthy uh, is probably on the hot seat right now. I have a very basic question that I'm a little bit embarrassed. I don't know, but the green Bay Packers are the NFL's only publicly owned team. How did, how did decisions like that in the Green Bay organization actually get made?
1: Well, I think that, look, the, you know, when they hired Ted Thompson, one thing about Green Bay, Green Bay has always given the general manager the latitude to do whatever he wants to do. He's got no owner looking over his shoulder. So when Ted Thompson basically made the decision, and he was going to be just all draft, college free agents in the draft, and he had no interest in, in free agency, he had no interest in really trades, he only had an interest in one way of procuring talent, and by doing that, and what I try to write in the piece and what I try to express is by being so young all the time, it's hard to have guys that know what to do offensively. I mean, this is the problem. People, It's the opposite problem in New England. Brady, they don't hold anything back. So Brady's playbook is about the size of two Manhattan phone directories. Meanwhile, when some rookie comes in from Florida, he looks at that and says, oh, my God, how am I going to learn all this stuff, right? It's hard. That's why they have a hard time finding receivers. Whereas in Green Bay, they take the opposite approach. They basically have a pamphlet for an offensive playbook and they, they expect the kids to learn it, and Aaron Rodgers, who's brilliant, is saying, like, look, this is too basic for me. Like, I'm tired of learning, you know, basic math 101. I need more, and that's the conflict that goes on.
0: So, but if they decide to make a coaching change, they have Mark Murphy, who's the president of operations. They've got Brian Goodekunst, who's the GM, but does, like, so does Mark Murphy, who's acting like the owner for the Green Bay Packers, does he have to go to a board of directors and get their approval? No. Before, no?
1: No. No, I mean, and, and actually, Mark Murphy is, the, is really acting differently than most presidents of the Packers acted Bob Harlan never was vocal never really had an opinion on much he just stayed in the background and let the football people do it and the business people do their thing but Murphy is more inclined to be involved and more inclined to talk about what he wants to do and I see Murphy being the guy that's really uh probably would want to make the changes and drive the change within the front office I mean he's the one who you know Ted retired or or you know Ted had to leave and made those changes, and he picked them. So I, I think that that's really going to come down to what Murphy wants to do, really. If you had to make a bet, where will Le'Veon Bell end up? You know, you know, this is so funny. This Le'Veon Bell situation, nobody talks about he, missed, he misses games against playoff games because of injury. You know, Le'Veon Bell was suspended by the NFL for substance, you know, for illegal substance, right? Nobody mentions that. And then Booger McFarlane went on TV this week and said he feels like he's being, you know, treated disrespectfully and he's he's being, you know, like are you kidding me seriously? I mean, you've been suspended for four games because you violated the substance abuse program. Okay, that's on record. You've missed playoff games. That's on record. They stood by you. They offered you 21 million dollars this year to do a two-year contract that basically was about 38 million. You turned it down. Now look, you can say it was unfair, you can say you're being disrespected, but they offered you this huge contract even though you potentially could not be on the, on the field if something happens off the field that keeps you there. So I don't get it. And I think that's, that, that red flag is going to follow him wherever he goes. I mean, look, if you're willing to walk into your owner and say, I want to give Le'Veon Bell $70 million guaranteed, and oh, by the way, if he has one off-the-field violation, he misses the year, you've got a lot of guts.
0: He is Michael Lombardi. Buy his book. It's an excellent read. Gridiron Genius. You can find it on Amazon, everywhere else. Thanks a lot, Michael. Enjoy New Jersey. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. All right. I'll be talking to Sean Pendergast tomorrow. We'll probably circle back and revisit some of the things that Michael Lombardi talked about today. Here are some questions that I've gotten on Twitter because I asked for them. for the love For the love of everything, I don't know... How people do solo radio shows. I do ten minutes solo, um, and I feel like I'm treading water while holding a brick with my vocal cords. Um, not the not the actual toll on the vocal cords itself, but in actually getting things to come out of my mouth. I I I, I am a rambling dude. I ramble too much when I'm on my show with co-hosts. I don't know what the hell. Uh, I don't know how these great these great solo hosts do it. I don't. I, uh, Colin Coward. Is annoying to me in a lot of ways, but every time I listen to him, I do recognize his brilliance in able being able to engage an audience and hold court for as long as he does. He gets some really good guests too, but he uh, he also he can just deliver a monologue like nobody's business. So hats off to you, Colin Coward, uh, but a hesitant one at that. You annoy me. So Jessica, the other day, before I get to my Twitter questions, Jessica asked this. And I didn't get to it on air, so I want to get to it now. And I I believe Jessica listens to the podcast. How do you football players handle the cold when you play in Green Bay or Chicago? Always curious how y'all come out without long sleeves. Um, Look you know, for one, some guys will play with sleeves and I I think there's a tendency to feel like, Oh, those guys aren't tough. No, those guys are smart. (laughs) Those those guys aren't morons. I look back to the times I played without sleeves and I, for the law, I don't know who I was trying to impress. Um, other than that, like the classic, male scenario of not wanting anybody to think you're a pussy and, uh, how all the dumb things you do because of that. And you want to, you want to show how tough you are. There's something to be said, I think for going out there and having bare arms. And especially if the guy across from you is wearing sleeves and you don't look like you're cold, you just look like you're out there and you're crazy. I like to think that helped out a little bit. You feel like even if your own mind, it gives you some kind of a psychological edge, but you also have to remember that you've got technology on your side. You get to the sideline, and they've got these hot seats that warm your feet. They're, the seats themselves are warm because uh, they blow hot air through the back of them and through the seat of it. And then you also have the heaters on the sideline blowing air to you. So you really only have to be cold for a few minutes at a time, you know, a long drive. If you're out there for like 10 to 12 plays, that's a long time to be out there. And you're running around, that keeps you kind of warm, but your extremities get really cold. So there's not a whole lot you can do to protect your hands from getting cold while you're out there. But it's it's in short spells. The worst I could ever remember was we played Cincinnati one year. It was just miserable conditions because it was their old field and they had forgotten to put the tarp out the night before, or they neglected to, and it rained. And then, after it rained uh, with all that wet turf, it snowed and sleeted on top of it. So when we got out there, it was like it was like a crust of ice over sloppy mud and then snow on top of that crust too, and it was just a mess. So aside from actually just being cold, your feet got wet, and your hands got wet, and your elbows got wet, and you got scraped up, and instead of turf burns, you were getting ice burns on your shoulders or on your elbows. And I can remember the worst part about it was it seemed like there were like five replays in that game, and it was under the old rules where, remember – there was a there was a brief period of time where if a coach's replay was successful, it seemed like they got unlimited numbers of them before they put a, a cap on it somehow. I, I can't remember what it was. It seemed like there were 10 replays th- in that game, and you just stand out there being freezing. I remember Kevin Hardy was trying to call the defense and uh, like just couldn't even get the words out of his mouth. E- Eagle 52. <laughs> Nobody could understand what he was saying. So that was miserable. I played up in Chicago one year. Uh, same thing. I remember just wondering. I asked the center, like, "How the hell are you snapping the football?" Because we were out there standing, waiting for the play to start, and it was a beautiful blue sky day. Because that's what happens when it's extremely cold. At the time, I think it might have been one of the coldest games ever played at Soldier Field. Um, maybe in terms of wind, ch- wind chill, I don't know. Uh, but it was it was beautiful to take pictures. But I can remember driving to the stadium and seeing. The lake, the the water on the lake had, like had frozen in waves, so it was like the waves froze midair. Uh, that was nuts. And so I guess to answer the question, Jessica, it's a combination of like old school machismo, uh, low IQ, and the assistance of modern technology. That's how guys get it done. Questions from Twitter, and this is another interesting one. I, I, I going up back to the Wayback Machine for some of these. This is from Matt Stevenson. Watched a show about the Bottlegate game in 2001 between the Browns and the Jaguars. Do you have any stories from that? So in 2001, the uh, Jaguars played in Cleveland, and there was a situation at the end of the game. For the love of me, I know there's a video on YouTube right now. Um, and it might be a Netflix, I don't know. There's a couple videos, it seems that have come out all of a sudden, because people are asking me these questions. I should have looked up the details, but screw it. I'm not gonna. Um, cause these are, these are my memories unmolested by fact checking. So I'm going to give you this. I was out on the field and, um, I, I can't even remember what the specific play was, but the officials were reviewing this play and, uh, and, and it overturned. And I think what it was, was that the Jaguars got a first down, um, and so I was already out there on defense because we thought we were going out on the field, but basically the, the replay showed that the Jaguars should be out there. So I I come off after the officials make the announcement and I'm hearing all this screaming and booing and I get to about the hash mark and all these guys are standing on the field. Like the whole sideline is standing on the field of play. And I remember like, just as I was about to ask somebody like, what, what the hell's going on? A bottle comes skipping past my feet. So this was bottlegate. This was where the fans were so angry that they just started showering the field with empty bottles, full bottles. And this is important to remember because I remember I remember being livid afterwards because in Cleveland they kept writing these stories about like, ah, this isn't that big a deal. They're just uh, empty plastic bottles. No, these were beer bottles full of beer and or urine that they were they were thrown at us as weapons. And it was nuts because it just kept coming. And it kept coming and finally the ref came out on the field and said the game is over even though there was time remaining in regulation. So we, we run to the locker room, and it was just such a surreal scene. I mean, we all had to cover our heads as we're running through the tunnel because people are pelting us with bottles and everything. It, it looked like something out of the movies that doesn't look realistic. Like, ah, that's, that's Hollywood. They'd never do that in real life. This was Hollywood in Cleveland, which sounds depressing. And, so I, and I can remember vividly, I cannot remember the name of this kid, that did it? He was like a guy that maybe made it in the NFL like one or two years. He was this young tight end. Everybody else, everybody else is running through the tunnel, putting their hands up over their heads, kind of maybe flipping the fans off as you're running in, but you're protecting yourself. This kid, this kid just ran through the tunnel like like a proud Marine, standing totally erect with his fist in the air, and was getting pelted by everybody. Uh, it was awesome. So then we get into the locker room. And everybody's got half their clothes off. Coughlin gets up and gives a speech. And uh, it's just this jubilant post-game atmosphere. And then somebody comes in and says, hey – the commissioner called. We gotta finish the game. So they cobbled together a group of eleven guys to go out and kneel down on the ball. And I can remember there were, you know, there were wide receivers playing guard. There were defensive players out there, and offensive linemen. They, I don't. I'm sure there were many violations in terms of guys lining up as eligible receivers or whatnot. Um, but the officials just just brushed it under the rug. That was weird. And I remember afterwards talking to. I think I was talking to Vic Ketchman, who a writer for the for at the time for the paper. Now he writes for the website or, he, no, he writes elsewhere. Um, but I remember saying something like, Oh yeah, they'll remember this. They'll be writing for about this for decades. And, and he said, eh, I don't know about that, man. I think people will want to forget this. So it's funny. Now, that uh, almost two decades later, I'm getting questions about it on Twitter, a medium that didn't exist back then, uh, ab- about that. And that there are documentaries about it. It's uh, it-, it gets revisited every now and then. It's just a weird, weird moment in history. And then also at the time, I think people thought, well, this will be one of the most shameful things that's ever happened in sports. And then, uh, look, we, we took care of business over the next decade. We had... Bottle uh we had uh, Bounty Gate. We had all kinds of stuff that went way above just that, that little display. I admire the Cleveland fans' passion. Pat D. Stat, one of my favorite guys, asks, uh, cowboy collar, neck roll, Eric Dickerson horseshoe neck roll, or none of the above. I uh you know my favorite one was that Brian Cox like poster board that he had behind his head. I don't I don't even know what people expected that to do for you. The neck collar and any of you medical types, please feel free to correct me on this. It's fallen out of favor. Um, and for a few reasons, I think. And one is that I know for me, I wore a big one for a long time and I had neck issues. And I think my thinking was like, okay, yeah, you don't want your neck to get bent around too much. So it keeps my head from, from flipping back too far. The more they learned about what causes spinal injuries, um, or at least football players started to catch on to it. Keeping your head from bowing all the way back is it, like it might prevent you from getting a stinger, but it's kind of dangerous in terms of uh, increasing your chances for uh, for a spinal injury, as I understand it. So I also think that for me, it was kind of a bad idea because. I had a lot of stingers, and I thought I think that neck roll kind of emboldened me, and I thought like ah, I got a neck roll. I'm just gonna go and just be a human missile and and run into things as hard as I can, and I kept getting the stingers. I don't know why I thought I could do that, uh, but I I, I, I kind of like it. I, I like the Eric Dickerson neck roll. The only thing about the Eric Dickerson neck roll, remember that's that white one, the plasticky one that goes around your neck. I don't know what that did for anybody. Like it seems. You remember when you put your helmet on? If you had one of those neck rolls, it's like you could still touch the ear of your helmet to your shoulder. So I don't know what that was for, other than cosmetic purposes. Or Eric Eric Dickerson had a lot of Jerry curl. I don't know if it, it kept the Jerry curl from seeping down into his neck area. Uh, I I don't I don't get that one at all. The Brian Cox backboard thing there was cool just because in my mind too that was like oh wow that'll keep you from ever buckling your head back um and then on on a side note i'll tell you what now that i'm thinking about how we used to use our helmets as weapons and just how freaked out people would rightfully be about that these days um one of my coaches Bob Carmelowitz, who was a awesome old guy, just a just a cranky old sob, like one of the crankiest old sob's you'll ever find. He was like a caricature of a football coach. His whole strategy um, was to use your helmet as a defensive lineman to come up and pop the offensive lineman right in the chin with your helmet, with like the the not the crown of your helmet, but right where you're say like like above your eyeballs there, um, the front of the forehead of your helmet. And it basically like pop the dude like a Pez dispenser. And that when when you get that guy in the sweet spot right there, there's nothing you can do about it. And I didn't like it in some respects because that meant you were leading with your head, which means a good offensive lineman could dump you on it. But it's true when you hit a guy right in the chin with your helmet, it did damage, and you could do whatever you wanted with him after that. I apologize to anybody for the potential permanent brain damage I've given you. So uh, let's see, uh, my guys, Jackie and. Uh, Jackie Goss is just asking way too many questions that don't make any sense at all and are cluttering up all this. George Foster, old offensive lineman from back in the day, asks sausage or bacon. Uh, I don't, I don't see how that's even debatable. I think for most people, I, I don't, I don't even, I'm not sitting here trying to get in an argument about people's personal preferences. I would assume most people prefer bacon unless there's syrup involved, um, in which case if I've got syrup available and I'm in a syrup mood, then I'm going to hit the sausage hard. Um, but I, And I'd prefer kielbasa. How, okay, breakfast sausage with syrup. Now this is getting harder. And then kielbasa overall. I just don't get a lot of kielbasa. Somehow I've allowed bacon to feel healthier because I, uh, I buy into enough of the paleo stuff to make me feel good about eating bacon. It's basically, I pick and choose nutritional strategies based on what they allow me to get away with. And I like paleo for no other reason, like not for the scientific reasoning behind it, because a lot of that's just garbage, like absolute, like honestly, pseudoscience garbage. Some of it makes a little bit of sense, um, but a lot of it's just pseudoscience garbage, but they're uh, they're not completely opposed to eating bacon. So I'll go with that. Bacon, let's see. Uh, what do you think about a six-team college football playoff with buys for the top two, where all games use a BSC bowl location, and five of the six teams are the power five uh, power conference championships with one best of the rest? Um, so like the the group of five, I suppose. If, if that's what you mean, or or the at large birth. I'm all 4'6". six. I'd be fine with eight, too. Uh, look, I, these guys play so many games already. An extra game or two, I don't, I don't see the big deal behind it. Um, I like, frankly, I have reservations just about the way the NCAA treats college athletes. I, I there's no easy fix, though. Um, so when uh, if your if your argument is that while well, you're exploiting college athletes by having them play an extra game or two, there are that that, that damage is done already. That water's under the bridge. They're already exploited. Um, but just go ahead and have a fun environment for it and have some fun playoffs. I'd rather be playing football and sitting around and practicing for four weeks while coaches get bored and just scream at you. Let's add an add an extra game or two. Now, having said that, I never played a twelve game college. Uh, schedule plus extras as a college kid, so that that might be easier said than done. Um, I think the more teams, the better, within reason. Six might make sense. With eight, I, I would hate to get to a point where it's like the NBA playoffs, and the first the first round is just a sacrificial lamb, and teams like Alabama are just tuning, fine-tuning themselves for later on. Because then you get injuries, too, that end up affecting the national championship. I like the idea of six. Um, I don't know why they're so dead set on four other than that in the onboarding process, there was so much uh, hostility towards the playoffs uh, from some respects. The people who asininely thought that somehow it was going to decrease the uh, interest or the importance of the regular season, all of that. Uh, I love it. I, I absolutely love it. And I'm a guy that was kind of disgusted and sick of the whole BCS system for a long time. So it's re-enlivened my interest in college football. Oh, and one more thing about the cold weather, Jessica, back to your question. We used to do this. I think they still do it. Um, you rub Vaseline on your arms. And, uh, that helps also not enough to make it slippery because that's a violation that is punishable by, uh, like a 10 to $20,000. The Broncos got in trouble for putting slippery substances on their shoulder pads a few years back. And this has happened at various times was the Broncos might've been the chiefs in a Broncos game. Um, back in the day, we used to spray silicone on our shoulder pads, on our jerseys, actually, to make them more slippery, harder to grab, and uh, the NFL caught on to it. Somebody complained during a playoff game. They punished the offending team by, like, a $20,000 fine for the players that, that got caught, and that was it. That was the end of it, which is what the fine and punishment is supposed to be for an equipment violation, much like deflating a football, so... The deflating of a football, which was made into this huge issue uh, that didn't have to be. And as it is all in in all situations, it's the cover up and not the crime. A lot of the times it does uh, more harm to an organization or exacts a larger punishment. But I digress. In a in a vast way. Back to the cold weather. The uh the, the Vaseline is supposed to help keep you warm. I don't know if that's psychological or if that's proven. Then obviously you wear tights, all that other stuff. It's actually not that bad. It has to be really, really cold before you're miserable as an as a lineman at least. For wide receivers and quarterbacks, it's a whole different deal because your fingers get numb and you're trying to operate, you know, it'd be like It'd be like trying to handwrite or do anything else with fine motor skills when your fingers are frozen. It's really hard to do, especially with a really hard, overinflated football. So uh, I think that's it. I'll intersperse my memories about playing in cold weather as they come up. Uh, Somebody else asked this question. Where is it? Uh, uh, Kyle, I think it's Kyle K. Mays asks, Christmas or Thanksgiving, which is worse and why? Uh, Boy, if I had to, I like both those holidays, as stressful as the holidays can be. Um, But I'll say Christmas, Christmas uh, just on the secular side is worse because of all the stress and the pressure. And I, and I think for everybody, even if you yourself don't attach too much importance to all the tradition of Christmas, the gift giving, uh, the family obligations, all of that. People around you do, so it's impossible to escape. There's somebody in your family, either close or extended, that attaches huge importance to Christmas, and that's why the the worst part of any Christmas. Is if things don't go perfectly and somebody then has to blow it up into why on Christmas why do you have to do this on Christmas I'm lucky my wife's really cool about all this stuff um I'm, I'm thinking back to my childhood and, and various family members and I think probably the bigger your family gets the more chance there is for one loose cannon on Christmas to destroy everything by being upset that he or she is perceived that everything has been destroyed this is typically how it goes uh there's an incident somebody's unhappy there's an argument which hasn't destroyed christmas but somebody by virtue of it being christmas decides that it has ruined christmas which then ruins christmas for everybody else and then it's on to the next family this has been one of my long standing objections to divorces this is where this is where divorce is truly cruel to the kids i grew up uh in a split household And from a very early age, you have to, you have all these extra obligations on Christmas that you got to figure out a way to go see your dad. You got to go see your mom's family. You got to see everybody's family on that side. Once your dad gets remarried two or three times, you got two or three extra families to deal with, not to mention all the extra gift giving. This is, this is the true tragedy of divorce. Every other thing I could handle and stand, it was that once a year during Christmas where I had so many obligations to so many different people. That's why my answer, k May's, is Christmas, although I do love them both. Uh, Thanksgiving, the only bad part about it is the, the weight you gain. And it starts so early. I never had any idea what it was like working in an office environment. Because now I see this period from, from Halloween and our boss, Sarah Fraser, who's awesome, uh at Entercom here in Houston she loves Halloween so she starts decking the office out you know 2 3 weeks before Halloween but there's also always a lot of candy floating around she keeps candy up at the desk and Sarah I don't think you listen to this podcast but I apologize I'm probably responsible for like 25% of the candy budget I get there early there's still some left out on the counter from the day before I don't want people eating stale candy so I generally eat, I take one for the team and I eat all that candy and then it extends on into Thanksgiving where uh, we have our Thanksgiving party a week before Thanksgiving. And then uh, this this time of year, somebody's already got some leftovers they're bringing in and they're leaving in our office kitchen. I don't know if it's like this in most kitch- uh, most offices. We have a very giving office community and there's always food in there. So like today, I walk in and there's leftovers from yesterday's Thanksgiving lunch that our boss had there's, there's two dozen mini cupcakes out there. They're just a mini cupcake. What am I going to do? Take, uh, not take a mini cupcake and then maybe nine more. And this is where it starts. It starts right now. Um, it started at Halloween actually, but now it extends on through, we've got our, our parties. Um, I've got other adult parties to go to. I've got events that I'm going to go to. I, I keep fighting the good fight. I go to orange theory like once every other day, is penance more than anything. It's not even to stay in shape. It's just penance for all the food that I've eaten. It's getting to be a real problem. Uh, but uh, look, I love it. I regret it afterwards. I feel dirty and shameful the whole month of January, but I enjoy these, these whole two months. Let's see. Oh, Jason Leach. This is a guy. Uh, he's a CFA. What's that? Certified financial advisor. So I don't know. He he does stuff with money. He's a bright guy. He and I got in a big, long debate on Twitter one night about modern receiving gloves and whether I believe his contention is that Wide receivers these days get too much credit for their prolific stats because they're aided by these gloves, which make these one-handed spectacular catches so so much easier. They're still not easy, but it's a lot easier. If you've ever played with these things or messed around with them, it is incredible how much better they make your hands. They're just this this super technical tackified material that basically acts like stickum. This is this is how I left it with Jason Leach the last time and he gave me the little, uh, the old school smiley emoji with the colon in the parentheses. Uh, he didn't have to do, he didn't have to resort to modern witchcraft with the, the iPhone emojis. Um, look, football has been changing constantly since the day it was invented from back in the early days of football, where it was just common practice to try to skirt the rules, exploit loopholes in the rules as much as possible. You know, Pop Warner used to stitch pockets into people's jerseys to hide the football in. Uh, they would play with they would play with uh, 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 football colored jerseys to disguise the football. They were like every single year they'd try to find a different way to exploit the rules, and then football was constantly creating new rules. So it's constantly changed, and, including legalizing the forward pass, I think in 1906. And ever since then, it's been a steady progression of making it easier and easier to have more and more offense, partly for safety reasons these last few years, but then partly because people just like more offense. Um, so, I you're already at the point where you don't you can't compare modern receiving stats to even receiving stats from the 90s or early 2000s cuz the game has changed so much. I don't care that it's easier to make one-handed catches. They're still spectacular. And DeAndre Hopkins and Odell Beckham Jr. Is it easier for them to make a one-handed catch than somebody in like, let's like say the nineties where by that point they had stopped using stick them. They were still using gloves. They weren't as good as the current ones, but they were still using tackified leather gloves. Um, okay. Maybe it's a little less impressive, But you're always just measuring receivers against their peers and how are they versus the guys that they're competing with right now. DeAndre Hopkins and Odell Beckham Jr. are far better than everybody else in the league when it comes to making plays like that. So I give them full credit for their incredible catches. You also, you have to see DeAndre Hopkins' hands in person. It's like he's got uh, lacrosse baskets on his forearms. It's incredible how big his hands are and how good he is with them. So let's not pretend that it's the gloves and the gloves alone when it's him, Odell Beckham Jr., and a couple other guys in the league that make those incredible catches. And uh, Jason Jason and I came to a gentleman's agreement to disagree and that he, uh, he feels like these guys are taking away some of the shine from the old-time receivers. Like, uh, that's football. That's life. That's the way it's going to be nobody's as good as Jerry Rice. It's probably, it's unlikely that there'll never be, ah, no, okay, I I take that back. If they keep playing football, somebody's going to be as good as or better than Jerry Rice at some point. Part of that was a scheme too. Let's see. Uh, Lauren Smith asks question, which is better the Texas Hill country or the New York Finger Lakes? Oh, that's a really good question. The New York Finger Lakes region, which is where I grew up is just absolutely gorgeous. The problem is that it's absolutely gorgeous for about six months out of the year. The rest of the year, it's miserable, it's cold, it's dark. This is one thing that people don't realize about where growing up up north. For me, it was never the cold. I don't mind the cold. I love the snow. And the snow, if anything, at least gives you a little bit of respite from the incredible soul-draining darkness that exists in the winter months up there. Uh, the, you're at a further, you're, you're further north in latitude, which means there's even less daylight in the winter up there than there is down here. It's dark by like three 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, even when it's light out, it's cloudy. And in Western New York, particularly it's like a damp cold. It's a really, really challenging environment from a, like a mental health standpoint. I feel like in Western New York where there are more cloudy days in Western New York than there are in Seattle. It's, um, I, I think there are, there's a whole lot of seasonal effect. Is it seasonal affective disorder? Whatever it is. The acronym is SAD. That tells you all you need to know. And people just get downright depressed for a good portion of the year. So six months out of the year, I would give it to the Finger Lakes region in the summer up there. It's beautiful, and it's a, com- a comfortable temperature. Texas Hill Country, I got to give it to them for year-round enjoyability. Not that you want to be you know, out swimming in a stream in January in Texas either, um, but for emotional reasons and uh, all my memories growing up there personally, I enjoy the Finger Lakes a little bit more uh, just because of my fond memories of it. Uh, let's see. Grant asks, do you get nookie in your new van? Not yet. Not yet. I'm going to say this. and I don't know if my wife would be happy about this, but uh, I, I think the RV, I think my wife is more turned on by RVs than by like uh, a sports car. I don't know what she was like in high school and I've never had a sports car or what. Uh, but I think a lot of women I've actually, we've, we've discussed this with people before. There's some women that just like the idea of the novelty of a situation, um, or the, the feeling that it's just something different. So I'll leave it at that. But the, the van I've only had for like three or four months and we've got many other obligations and it just hasn't, have. Uh, we'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Let's see realistic chances that the Texans get Le'Veon in the offseason. That one from Aaron. I don't think I don't think it's very realistic for a lot of teams. And it's not just the Texans. I think it comes down to what are the competing offers going to be. And there are some teams out there with a whole bunch of cap space. I think Le'Veon to get the most out of him needs to go to a team like the Steelers that have a really good offensive line. I don't know if he's going to find as good an offensive line as the Steelers, but one team that keeps popping up is the Indianapolis Colts because all of a sudden, lo and behold, after years and years of various coaches allowing Andrew Luck to get pummeled like a heavy bag, uh, they have a good offensive line. And I think if you take the concept of Le'Veon Bell and think about – his prowess as a receiver as well um, and his ability to run behind a young and developing and improving offensive line in Indianapolis, that might be a scary prospect. And and we've seen there with Jim Ursay and various GMs, he's not afraid to spend a whole bunch of cash and they have a whole bunch of cap room. I believe they're a top three team in terms of cap space next year. So it wouldn't surprise me. So then the question becomes, are are teams like the Texans or or other people going to want to want to, or be able to compete with teams with that much cap space and a willingness to perhaps overpay in the short term. I don't think so. Uh, the other concern and Michael Lombardi, you guys just heard him talk about this is that, um, Maybe he talked about the Andrew Luck thing. I'm probably stealing his take or something. Um, the other thing, too, is uh, the that – what the hell was I talking about? Andrew Luck. Uh, it's happening already. It's I'm 43 years old, and I've completely lost it. The other thing is – oh, oh, as uh, as Michael Lombardi mentioned, he's got these other issues, his suspensions, his injuries, all of this – I don't know how dependable a person he is. Uh, and I'm not speaking about just his body. I'm talking about the whole shebang. So what are you going to get out of Le'Veon Bell? I don't worry about the one-week layoff, or excuse me, the one-year layoff. I think I think he'll come back from that just fine. It's all that other stuff plus the money. I don't think the Texans, uh, I don't think the 49ers would really necessarily be in the market for him because if there's one thing we know about Kyle Shanahan, Gary Kubiak, those systems – they, they can get a lot out of a lot of different running backs. Um, and, and Kyle Shanahan knows and understands that it's not to say that they would never take a running back in the first round, but I don't think he's going to sign on for all the headaches, the potential headaches of a Le'Veon Bell. And the zone running scheme is a much different scheme than what they do a bunch of the time in Pittsburgh. And it's not so simple and easy to just say that, okay, Le'Veon will leave Pittsburgh scheme and be fine in San Francisco scheme and be that one cut and go guy. Um, if anything, Le'Veon Bell's way more patient than a coach like Kyle Shanahan would want in that system, which is really predicated on making a pretty quick decision. You know, you run to the sideline, you make your one cut, and then you get upfield. field. Le'Veon's skill set and his style of running could adapt to that, but it's a projection and you just don't know for sure. And especially if you're talking about spending $45 million, uh, I don't know about all of that. Let's see. Uh, Frost Gear asks, what's your biggest problem with owning a small business? Um I think you're jumping off of me and my ads for ZipRecruiter where I talk about hiring. Uh, so this is not an ad for ZipRecruiter, but I will say in hiring, and I know my personal weakness was—I'll uh, tell you this—it's simple as background checks. This is why I, this is why I actually think that using services like ZipRecruiter and other people, not that ZipRecruiter specifically does background checks, but in really investigating your employees, um, and, and evaluating multitudes of employees to find the right one. I wasn't good at that. I kind of got a good feeling about somebody. I'm like, yeah, yeah, come run my business and, uh, steal all my money while you're at it. That part was hard. Let's see. Which would you? I can't. I can't answer that question. Bunch of local media personalities, both men and women. Uh, I, I. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play that game. I'm not gonna play that game. Let's see. I'll do one more of these before I go. I'm trying to think if there's anything from my personal life that you guys would be interested in right now as I scroll through these questions. I don't think there is. Uh, let's see. Why isn't college football as entertaining as the NFL this year? That from Jesus Delco. I wonder if part of it is simply that the NFL, after kind of getting battered around for a couple years with all kinds of off-the-field controversy, as well as injuries to quarterbacks, um, some guys like Peyton Manning retiring, uh, I I feel like this year all of a sudden it's been a huge rebound for the NFL. And I don't know if it's particularly that college football is less entertaining this year as much as – because I (laughs) – Okay, it's a little less entertaining in that now that Alabama has Tua, it seems like everything is unfair. It seems like there's just no hope for anybody except for possibly Clemson, and that's been the story for a long time. So maybe there's a little bit of fatigue now in college football. You know, obviously, we'll talk about Notre Dame with Sean Pendergast tomorrow. He's a Notre Dame alum, um, and, and some of the other teams that that are in the mix, but there is at least that, that feeling of stagnancy, perhaps in the NFL, it it almost feels like you're at the dawn of a new era where all of a sudden you have a bunch of bright, young, new quarterbacks that look like they're going to stick this time. You know, Pat Mahomes, I would be really surprised if Pat Mahomes doesn't have long-term success in the NFL. Uh, Deshaun Watson, if he stays healthy, I'm going to be surprised if he doesn't have long-term success, partly because of the players themselves, but partly because the NFL has finally adapted itself to the skill set of modern college quarterbacks. And then I think a lot of guys, I think there are quarterbacks that played a decade ago that were quote unquote spread quarterbacks who didn't make it because the NFL wasn't ready for them. And maybe some of those guys, if they entered the league right now, it would be a whole different story and they would acclimate more quickly and, and they'd be just... Just fine. But I think, I think it's less about the NFL being more entertaining than college football in general, as much as like in the ebbs and flows of how the NCAA or the NFL operates. This seems to be a pretty good year for the NFL. And people just love offense. That's the other simple question or simple answer. People love offense. And there is a record breaking amount of offense this year in the NFL. Is it at the expense of good, pure, true football? Maybe. I don't know. But look, as much as we try to act like we're sophisticated, elegant sports fans who appreciate a good defensive battle, I'll go back to baseball in the steroid era. People love them some home runs and dingers. And uh, they they love fantastic, bombastic, supernatural production offensively. And that's what you're getting right now. And it's nice that it's aided. By modern receiving gloves instead of, uh, an explosion of steroid use like baseball was in the nineties. That's it, everybody. It's going to be me and Sean tomorrow, taking you on into the weekend. And uh, I got to get back on the interview train, start doing some stuff. Marcellus Wiley and I are like star crust, uh, interviewer interviewees at this point, because we keep, uh, we keep having to cancel on each other and it's not his fault. It's not my fault. There've been technical issues. I think we're going to get, I think we're going to get Marcellus Wiley next week, which would be great because I, I I'm just about to finish his book. It's a great read. It's a it's a fun book to read. Uh, also tomorrow, with Sean, after after I talk to him, try to get off topic a little bit here and do some non-sports, um, not politics, but not sports. Thanks everybody. Have a great rest of your week.